This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 91. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. One question that I've been getting asked a lot, both from listeners of the podcast, as well as those in my investing course, is how to deal with and optimize any sort of investments through your work. Now, typically in Canada, when you work for a mid-sized to large organization, you'll either be part of a defined contribution pension plan, where you get some sort of employer match as part of your compensation, but the income you receive from those investments in retirement is not guaranteed for life as it's highly dependent on what the markets do and what funds you are holding through your employer. Now, the other main type here in Canada is a defined benefit pension plan. These are what I like to call the gold-plated pensions, and it's what teachers, police officers, and other government workers tend to have here in Canada. Some companies in the private sector offer this too, but these are continuously becoming more and more rare. And what makes them so appealing is that they just about guarantee you a specified income for life, no matter what the markets are doing. Now, we're going to cover both types of pensions in this interview. So unless you are a small business owner or work for a small business, then this episode will be highly relevant to you. And even then, there's a good chance that either your partner works for a company that offers one of these, or maybe one day you'll end up working for someone that offers this. So it's definitely something that's good to know. Now, I did want to give a big thanks to one of the podcast listeners, Krista, for submitting such excellent questions for this episode. And we actually use those questions as a base for this interview. Specifically, some of the things we cover are how should a pension factor into how you view your finances slash investments? And again, this is all going to be for both types of pensions, no matter which one you have. And what should your portfolio look like with a pension? For example, should you have more equity than bonds, for example, especially if you have one of those, you know, nice sort of guaranteed government pensions and how to factor a pension into an early retirement, no matter which one you have and the tax implications of potentially taking a buyout for an early retirement, if that's an option. So we cover all that and much more in the interview. Now, to help me with this, I have Rob Engen on the show, who is one of the most reputable fee-for-service financial planners that I know of here in Canada. He also runs one of the largest personal finance blogs in Canada called boomerandecho.com. He's regularly quoted and featured in financial media, such as the Globe and Mail, Money Sense, the Financial Post, CBC, and Global News. And he used to actually work for a university here in Canada where he had one of those nice gold-plated pensions where he ended up transitioning from that to becoming self-employed. So he had to go through all this analysis himself firsthand on what to do when you have a pension and then you no longer wish to stay with that employer. So I thought he'd be a great fit for this episode as he's actually gone through these options and all this analysis himself. So it's not just some theory that we're going to be talking about here. Now, a few quick notes before we get into the show. I briefly mentioned the investing course as that's where I answer questions one-on-one. So if you do want to try and view all the video lessons as well as ask me questions, that's over at Build Wealth Canada. 
ca slash training. And I've also got two free resources for you. So I get asked a lot which ETFs I hold in my own investment portfolio and how much do I hold of each one. So the free tool that I actually use to manage all my investments and see how they're doing actually has a feature now where I can share my portfolio and asset allocation with everyone. So I wanted to make that available to you and you can check it out for free over at Build Wealth Canada dot ca slash portfolio and you don't need to sign up or anything like that to see it it's all free and yeah so just enjoy (laughs) and when you're on that page you'll also have the option to create a free account to use the same tool that i use almost exclusively to manage buy and rebalance my investments it's called passive i'm a huge fan it's a canadian company and they've already saved me thousands over the years by making my portfolio more tax efficient helping me buy the lowest cost etfs And they save me dozens of hours when it comes to actually managing my portfolio and rebalancing and buying my investments. So again, you can see my entire portfolio over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash portfolio. And while you're there, you'll see a button to also get a free passive account so that you can literally be using the exact same tool that I use. So that covers the equity side of my portfolio. And then for the safe fixed income part of my portfolio, I use the best high interest savings account that I've been able to find here in Canada. And I've been using it for years as it consistently has one of, if not the highest rates in Canada. And with it, your money is also insured by the government. So it's really as safe as it gets in my books. So I use this account for our cash cushion, our emergency fund, and for our day-to-day spending account. They have free US dollar accounts too for us Canadians, as well as GICs, if you're willing to lock in the money for an even higher interest rate. So the link to the account that I use for all of that is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash safe. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash safe. And now full disclosure, both of those are affiliate links, but I've been using both of them for years, even before they became sponsors of the show. I continue to use them and it's what I recommend to all friends and family. So if you are going to open up a free account with either of them anyway, please use those links as it really helps support the show and basically pay for additional staff to help me publish these episodes more frequently. All right. So I hope you enjoy that. And now let's get into the show. All right, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Cornell. So to start things off, can you take us through what the main pension types are for Canadians and what are the key differences between them? So the two main pension types are a defined benefit pension plan and then a defined contribution pension plan. And just kind of going back through history, it was a defined benefit plan that was you know, predominant for public sector workers and private sector employees where the employer took care of you and you could, you know, you'd work there for 40 years, and then you could look forward to receiving this pension income stream in retirement. But that's been changing rapidly over the last 20 years. And more and more employee employers are moving towards a defined contribution pension plan where they don't take on the burden of the risk of investing and then administering the pension plan. And instead, they offer some investment choices for employees to contribute to they might the employer might match but then the employer isn't on the hook for providing this guaranteed pension payout all throughout retirement so really putting the onus on the employee so right now so the main differences are that a defined benefit pension plan the benefits known in advance it's an income stream based on your years of service and your salary Some plans take, let's say, your best five years average or the last five years average salary. 
in most cases, the employee contributes a percentage of salary and the employer would contribute as well. And then, as I said, this plan is managed by the employer or a pension administer who bears the risk of investing and then paying out the funds when you're retired. You, as an employee, do not get to make investment choices. This is managed by the pension plan. Now, with a defined contribution plan, it's funded by the employee, and typically the employer will make matching contributions. So, for example, you know the employee puts in 5% of their salary, and then the employer would match and put in another 5%. Now, you may be able to, in most cases, you're able to make choices on how the money is invested based on you know, a limited number of selections on who the employer has chosen to administer the fund. It could be, you know, these are the big companies like a Sun Life or a Great West Life or Manulife. And then in retirement, uh, it's typically converted to what they call a locked-in retirement account or a Lira, which has some rules around it. It's like an RSP, but it has some rules around it where uh, you can't take out money typically until around age 55. And then you can take it out based on some minimum and maximum withdrawal uh, rates in retirement. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, do you find that in your practice, you're, you're a fee-for-service financial planner. When you speak to people or clients and then you're helping them with their finances, do you find that most Canadians, from your experience, know which one they have and know the differences between the two? Or is this actually something that most people are just like, yeah, I've got some pension at work, but then that's kind of as far as it goes. I don't think most people have any idea. You know, when you start at uh, a new job and you go through your orientation and and onboarding, you know, you'll get a bunch of documents thrown at you. And uh, one of those could be this pension plan of of some sort. And so I don't think a lot of people have an idea, especially when they first start. Most likely, if they're in a defined benefit pension plan and they're enrolled right away, until they get that first paycheck and they see some pretty significant deductions coming off their check. And they might think, holy cow, what is going on here? Why is, you know, eight, nine, 10, even 12% of my salary going towards this uh, pension plan? And then they'll um, hopefully do some more digging. Mm-hmm. Right. Because so the contribution, the fine contribution pension plan, they'll get the match. And so it's actually, they see a statement like, oh, my employer basically gave me free, free money because they matched my contribution. And it's like a positive thing, I guess, right? Whereas with a defined benefit, it's like, oh, they're taking out a lot. Yeah. And typically with the defined benefit, you're automatically enrolled. Like you, you're an employee and you are in this plan. That's because the plan administrator needs new employees. It needs employee contributions to help fund you know, the retirees' benefits. And so you're automatically enrolled in most cases. Whereas a defined contribution plan, you typically have to opt in, okay? So in this case, you should be finding out from your, you know, pension and benefits or human resources team what type of plan you have. And if it's a defined contribution plan, can you enroll right away? And what are the employer matching contributions? Uh, Because you'll want to know that to uh, take advantage of the free money. And that makes sense also why I think the one of the most common sort of tips, high value tips that I see in the personal finance space is sort of the biggest ROI on your time spent is, okay, make sure you're actually matching, doing the employer match, right? And because it's basically free money that you're getting. And so to what you just said about how you actually have to physically 
apply for it or enroll in it, right? I can see how someone starts a new job, they're busy learning it, they, they forget to do that, or it's on their to-do list, but it's item number you know 57 or whatever, and they don't get to it. And then the year goes by and they've basically lost that money now because it doesn't usually stack from my understanding, right? It's not like if you don't fully take advantage of the match, it's not like you get to, you know, get that you still have that amount to use from last year because you never used it you pretty much lose it right no yeah you can't that's right you can't catch up and yeah, so yeah. it's important to enroll and it's one of the challenges they're working with mostly in the states i hear about like a, a lot of the behavioral finance type folks like dan Ariely, and you know they're looking at ways to help people save more and they say stop making this an opt-in make it an opt-out instead Yes. So that, you know, you're automatically enrolled and contributing a portion of your paycheck and you don't even see it. Because the problem is as soon as you get that first paycheck, you know, taxes are taken off and CPP and EI deductions are taken off. And of course, you're left with the net and to do whatever you want. And for a lot of people, finances are, are tight. And so the last thing you do is think about, oh, I should, you know, throw a few hundred dollars into this pension plan. You know, you're enjoying that cash flow. And so these behavioral finance uh, types are wanting to turn that on its head and say, no, no, you should be automatically enrolled. And then the employee would have to auto, would have to opt out if they didn't want to contribute. Yeah, it's kind of like a extension of that pay yourself first strategy a little bit, right? Where it's, it's sort of all automated. It, the employers, by, by automatically being opted in, you're, you're in a way being forced to sort of pay yourself first to put money towards your actual investments as opposed to, oh, I'll put some in when if there's money left over and they're a lot of times there's not money left over because it's easy to spend the money once it hits your checking account. So exactly. As much as I don't like to give people homework over the summer, <laughs> it sounds like from what you just said that that's probably a, a big call to action for everybody listening is if you are not sure whether you have a defined benefit pension plan or a defined contribution pension plan, the big thing is to actually go and, and find that out. Ask your, I guess, HR department, I would think would be the best sort of place to find out, right, Rob? For sure. Yeah. Find mm -hmm. out what type of retirement plan that you either contribute to or that you have the option to contribute to. Mm -hmm. And especially if there's a defined contribution plan, what is that employer match? Because some, some of them can be really lucrative. For sure. For sure. And like up to what amount, that kind of a thing. Because I mean, yeah, it seems like such a critical thing that we should be learning even in you know elementary or, or post-secondary, right? To know, okay, what are the two different types and find out exactly which one you have right from the beginning that you get your first job. Because I mean, one of them is basically guaranteed for life. The other one is not. And I mean, that makes a huge difference, right? So that definitely seems like something that's like a core, core thing when it comes to financial literacy and really helping you out long-term, right? Totally. And and even understanding what I said in the, at the onset, where historically defined benefit pension plans were very common in the private sector. And employers do not want to be on the hook for bearing the responsibility of investing those funds and paying them out in retirement because people are living longer. You're paying out these pensions for arguably longer than that employee worked for you. And so that's why they're kind of cutting off these plans and moving it to a defined contribution plan where the onus is on you. It's on the employee to contribute to it, to make sure the investments are invested appropriately, and then to manage the withdrawals in retirement. Like it's all on you now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the employee works at the company, let's say till 65, let's say they live to be a hundred, the employer's on the hook totally. to pay them that money all the way up till then. Right. So yeah. it's uh that's a pretty big liability. I can see why companies from a sort of profit optimization perspective or and then liability reduction perspective 
kind of have that incentive to go more towards that defined contribution pension plan. Sure. And then we've all heard about the horror stories from, say, a Nortel that, you know, went bankrupt. Well, they had a defined benefit pension for their employees. And it's just a nightmare for, you know, existing beneficiaries who were retired. And then obviously for, you know, employees who were paying into the plan to, you know, get some, extract something out of this in the bankruptcy mm-hmm. procedures. So there is risk, especially in the private sector. It's very interesting. Is there an easy way that you have for people to remember which one is which if they're going to ask their HR department or talking to family about it? Just I find it can be easy to get the two mixed up. Well, the key is going to be, is there, you know, when I do enroll in this plan, do I get investment choices? This is the key difference. You, If a defined benefit pension, you have no responsibility whatsoever in how the, these funds are invested. That's all taken care of for you. In a defined contribution plan, you will be given a some kind of menu of options for investing these funds because it's your choice. And so there may be a default, right? Like a default, like a target date fund of, of when you're going to retire, like 2050, for example. But the key difference is, are you making the investment choices or not? And that's a, that's a good way to tell uh, the difference between the two. Gotcha. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. All right, I want to give a big shout out to Passive for sponsoring this episode. They are free to use and are literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments. If you've been investing for any period of time, you know how important rebalancing your portfolio is as that's what allows you to consistently buy low and sell high with your investments as well as ensure that you aren't taking on any additional unnecessary risk. Now, as critical as rebalancing your portfolio is, it's actually a manual and annoying labor-intensive process as to do it correctly, you have to log into each of your household's investment accounts and do manual data entry on a spreadsheet to figure out how much to buy of each investment every single time that you have money to invest. And there's always the chance that you make a mistake and miscalculate something when doing it yourself on a spreadsheet. So these days, when I have money to invest, I simply log into Passive, I immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio, and Passive automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target across all of my household's accounts. Then in a couple clicks, I can have Passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. I'm also able to see how my entire household's investment portfolio is doing across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all my accounts. So they have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Quest Trade user like me, you also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point so I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments. They saved me many dozens of hours when I'm managing and optimizing my portfolio. So definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company and you can get your free account by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Again, that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And now back to the show. And how should the two different pension types factor into how you view your finances and your investments? Well, because the, let's start with the defined benefit pension. So typically let's think about this from a public sector. So you think about teachers and police, government workers, 
as you said, this is kind of that job, that lifer job that you could be in for 30, 40 years. And then pretty generous pension plans in, in retirement, like you could receive, let's say, around 60% of your, of your final working year salary in retirement. So for in a lot of cases, your retirement is pretty much taken care of when you factor in, you know, CPP and OAS on top of that. And so, you know, these are, that's why they're called gold-plated pension plans, because, you know, your retirement's going to be, for the most part, looked after. Now, couple that in with the idea that a lot of teachers marry other teachers. Uh, and so I was just thinking that, yeah. yeah so then you have a, <laughs> this double kind of defined benefit pension. So you're not really obligated to do a lot of saving outside of that. And I think we'll talk about that later. But, you know, so the challenge is that you can contribute a fair bit from your exit from your salary to this pension plan. Like, um, again, as I said, eight to let's say 12% of your salary could be going towards these contributions. And so that reduces the, your paycheck, your cash flow during your working years. So I, I've, you know, I've had clients who are teachers or who are paying like pretty, pretty hefty uh, contributions into their pension plan. Now they know their retirement is going to be taken care of, but they're feeling like a little stretched for cash flow um, during their working years. And that's pretty common, right? Be just because so much of your paycheck is going towards this plan. It's just like if you were uh, one of these high, you had a high savings rate, you know, saving into an, uh, an RSP on your own, you would you know, obviously have less, less take-home pay to work with now. So the trade-off is you, your retirement's taken care of, but you're working on, let's say, 90% of your, of your salary because it's being whisked away. Now, on the other hand, the defined contribution plan, as you said, you, you're on the hook. Like You need to contribute and think about your retirement because no one's going to do it for you. And so, you know, luckily you have this defined contribution plan, which hopefully your employer contributes to and matches your contributions up to a certain amount. And how you should think about that is not be drawn into the high cash flow that you're receiving before you enroll in this plan. Uh, you should think about your retirement and you should think about capitalizing on this, these matching funds. I'll even go out on a limb and say it's more important to contribute to a matching pension plan, a matching defined contribution pension plan, than it is to pay off high interest credit card debt. Like it sounds like sacrosanct to say that, but <laughs> you know, a credit card at 19% interest or this pension plan where you could get a 100% or even a 50% match, um, you know, just do the math on that uh, return on that investment. So if you literally only had like a thousand dollars to be able to contribute to something, you know, the, the the defined contribution pension plan with an employer match should be at the top of your list. With the defined benefit pension plan, you know, the guaranteed one, you mentioned that a range that you give, I think, was it eight to 12%, I think you said? Yeah. Is that, so does that mean people with those kinds of plans, they get to actually choose how much within a certain range or not really? That's pretty much no. set by the employer. So, yeah, so it's set by the employer or the, or the pension plan or the fund administer. And again, kind of to my point about, you got to think back to all the, the beneficiaries right now who are receiving this pension plan. They have to be able, the plan itself has to be able to be sustainable or solvent enough to continue paying out these benefits. And so what often happens, and this happened in my case when I worked in the, in the public sector, is they increase the employee's contribution rates so that the plan can be sustainable for the long term and continue paying out, right? So you don't get to choose, you know, take 5% or take 6%. Like you are bound by whatever rules are defining this, um, 
this ben- defined benefit pension plan. And so, as I said, to continue to fund these plans and pay out retirees and beneficiaries, you know, who are living longer, and today's employees are paying higher and higher amounts are getting deducted off their check. Interesting. So in your case, you're at a university, I'm thinking to like teachers, anybody that has a defined benefit pension plan, they're able, you're saying they're able to actually increase the amount that you now have to contribute and you don't really get a say in that. Can they also decrease how much you get paid out in retirement? Let's say there's some hard times, things are looking pretty rough. You know, we, we know what the bonds are generating these days, right? There's right. some stressing stress coming from that area, right? So are they able to modify how much you actually get or is that pretty much guaranteed, but they may have to force you to pay more for that right now? So that's the typical option is the last resort would be, of course, to cut benefits to retirees. But there are a couple of tools that um, you know are being used more and more today. One is a lot of plans have a um, are indexed to inflation. So you're, let's say, for example, you were getting $4,000 a month. Well, the next year, that amount would be adjusted with whatever the CPI was. So it could go up by one or 2%. So a lot of plans now are saying, well, if we didn't have a good year with our investments, our COLA or our cost of living adjustment is going to be, we'll be able to modify that. So we won't give 100% CPI, we might only give 50% or we might do okay. ze- or we might do zero. So they manage that with the, with the benefits rather than like cutting your actual defined benefit plan or pension. Right. And then of course, as I said, on the employee side, it's raising those contribution or increasing those contribution rates. Now, of course, that both of those examples, you can only go so far, right? You're not going to be able to attract workers if, you know, 15, 20% of your salary is going to get sucked into this pension to pay to pay current retirees. Right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a balancing act. Yeah. And I, that makes, that makes sense. I can see someone gets a lot less upset if they don't get an inflation adjustment than if they get a letter saying, Hey, sorry, we got to pay you X hundred dollars less this right. month because we're we we did something where there all of a sudden isn't enough money. So sorry. Yeah. yeah so that, that makes sense. So those are kind of two good levers. I suppose. Yeah. That you can they can kind of pull. So as soon as long as they're kind of staying close, uh, they should be okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Now, what should your investment portfolio look like depending on the type of pension that you have? Oh, so, so I get asked this a lot. And uh, so for employees who have a defined benefit pension. You could really think about that like a bond, okay? So if you're going to, like I'll use the example of, you know, $4,000 a month pension, so $48,000 a year, it's guaranteed in a lot of cases adjusting for inflation and paid for life. And so you could really look at that like another CPP or OAS, bigger one even, where you're receiving these this fixed this fixed amount. And that will allow you to take more risk in your investment. I mean, you don't have to. But you could certainly think about your pension like a bond, and that would allow you to be more aggressive in your investing in your personal accounts. Uh, On the defined contribution side, again, this is your retirement. So you're on the hook for managing the risk and making sure it's appropriate for your kind of risk capacity and and time horizon. And so you'll want to be able to choose. In many cases, as I, I think I mentioned, the the target date fund that's been that's kind of a staple in the defined contribution plan world so you'd buy like a blackrock life path 2045 2050 whenever your retirement date is and then that what happens with the target date fund is it'll automatically adjust based on your age so it'll get less risky as you get closer to that retirement date and you don't have to do anything which is usually a good thing 
So I imagine people that you've spoken to that have, let's say, these defined benefit pension plans, they're probably not, shop- I guess annuities are probably off the table for them because what's why would they do that since they already have the secured guaranteed source of income, I suppose, right? Yeah, with a big defined benefit pension plus CPP plus OAS, you've got yeah. lots of fixed income that's paid for life and indexed to inflation in, in many cases. And so, you know, annuitizing your other savings is, you know, probably taking that a little too far. You know, you're, you're probably safe to go ahead and invest in, in a risk appropriate way. Um, whereas in the defined contribution plan, you know, again, you're all on the hook. So you could contribute to this plan for many, many years, decades even, and end up with, you know, you could have a million bucks or, you know, around that in your, in your defined benefit or defined contribution plan. And so, you know, thinking about annuitizing that uh, as you get into retirement is is probably not a bad idea. Have you ever looked into if it's actually a good deal, the defined benefit pension plan versus if you were just to invest that money yourself in broadly diversified portfolio, you know, index funds, that whole thing, you know, because you might, you compare it to a bond, right? And yes. so I'm wondering is, okay, you're contributing this money, what returns are you actually getting? And I, I realize this can you know, vary and all that, but I mean, is it actually a good deal? So someone like myself who doesn't have one, should I be bitter because I don't have this amazing pension like the teachers do? Or should I be like, you know what? That's not so bad because I can take that money, invest in myself in a, you know, at a discount brokerage and low cost ETFs. And I know, let's say on average, if I'm doing like, you know, high, very high equity allocation, let's say 8%. So I'm actually, I'm going to be far more up ahead in terms of net worth. The downside is it's not guaranteed, but the probabilities, the probabilities say that I am more likely to actually have a higher net worth because I'm able to sort of do it my own way and tweak the portfolio, let's say towards equity so that I can get that higher expected return. So one of the big challenges is that most people, I would say, don't have the knowledge to invest on their own in a way that is going to outperform, you know, a defined benefit pension. And you can use CPP as the example. So I hear a lot of times, you know, someone say, I want to take my CPP early and invest, and I can beat those returns. But, but can you? I mean, there's lots of research that shows, you know, deferring or delaying CPP until 70 you get an increase or enhanced benefit of uh, 42%, which is you know closer to 50% when you factor in the inflation adjustment. And that's a guaranteed income stream paid for life and indexed to inflation. That's really valuable. So if your defined benefit pension plan, you could think of it like a bigger CPP even, and you'll receive a, a large amount in, in retirement paid for life and potentially indexed to inflation. Like that is hard to beat from a personal investing standpoint. And so a lot of people could think, well, you know, I could do better, but I would challenge that and say, can you? The defined contribution or defined benefit pensions, you know, are, um, they call them a goal, like those golden handcuffs, for lack of a better term. Like once you've been in the plan for, let's say 15, 20 years, you're probably better off staying in that plan and receiving the pension um, payout. Because it could be worth, you know, if you, you do a present value calculation of those future income streams. It could be worth a million, a million and a half or more if you, you know, do that assuming payments until let's say age 90, 95. So it's very lucrative. Have you ever seen any sort of numbers, like like the numbers I hear oftentimes for equity investing, we'll say, okay, 8%, let's say, right? If you're 
if you're doing that, like just through low cost index funds, right? And obviously, there's arguments on both sides. Some say it should be lower now, some say it should be higher. But like eight percent is kind of sort of a common one that I hear. Have you heard any numbers like that for defined benefit pension plans in Canada? If you were to look at it from that sort of angle, what sort of percent are you getting? Of course, you have to factor in that you're getting a guaranteed thing for life, right? Inflation adjusted as opposed to if you're doing it yourself, there's zero guarantees. So obviously that's a huge, huge factor, like you've already said. You know, but is there have you seen any percentages like that just to give us sort of a frame of reference? To know kind of what are we like a teacher, what are they paying for that stability and that guarantee? Right. right. I'm assuming there's no free lunch here. No, there isn't. And that's, that's really common for when you kind of, you mentioned uh, earlier, like, should I be jealous of these uh, you know, teachers with these <laughs> yeah. plans? But, but I think what a lot of people forget is that the employee is contributing. Like this is not a free plan in a lot of cases. Some private sector plans are like the, the employer still contributes to it and the employee may not have to, but for the most part, the employee is contributing. So it is not a freebie where you can say, oh, you're so lucky to have this defined benefit pension plan. Where the benefit is, is the forced savings. It's coming off your check regardless, right? So you are forced to live on, let's say, 90% of your salary because this is being contributed and then invested on your behalf. And then the payout, which is defined and guaranteed and paid for life. You know, So it's hard to just make an apples to apples comparison to could I invest that amount on my own and do better? just because there's so many other variables. Like the pension plan itself is a pool of funds, getting contributions from current employees, investing that in, appropri- in an appropriate way so that they're getting growth for you know those current employees who are going to retire in 20 years, but also have some fixed income and cash so that they can pay out their existing beneficiaries. So it's a much different uh, system. And it's hard to just say, you know, oh, my pension plan administer only return 6% on that investment. Well, that's that's different than you getting your defined uh, benefit pension income stream in retirement, which is based on your years of service and your salary, right? So it's very hard to compare the two. For sure, for sure. Yeah, it's like I'm trying to force an apples to apples comparison <laughs> when really they look they look nothing alike. Well, there's some similarities, right? But but very very different, right? So it's yeah, that's a really good point. And and also what you said as well about people saying, oh well, I could probably just beat this, but if I did it myself, so why don't I just do that? There's also sort of that whole psychological piece as well, right? Because if you feel you can beat it. Okay, well, there's also you're assuming that you're never going to panic sell when we get another 2008 in the future, that you're going to be cool headed this whole time, right? You're going to, we're assuming here that you're not all of a sudden going to start speculating because you've gotten some confidence and then you start buying, you know, this and that cryptocurrency or this right. and that you know, or start buying into hedge funds or, you know, things of that nature that end up underperforming, you know, things, things of that nature, right? So there's this, there's sort of this whole other element, I think, too, of this thing is guaranteed and you think you can beat it. But like you said, can, are you sure you can? Because there's, there's a lot of temptations <laughs> and guarantees exactly. are very rare and very expensive exactly. to get. So if you got one. Plus, Cornell, you're getting the employer's contribution as well, right? So again, if I contributed 10% of my salary, my employer is kicking that amount in mm. as well. And so now if you, let's say, aren't in that plan, but you want to like mimic something like that on your own by investing, you've got to invest 20% of your salary and be consistent with it. Like the defined benefit plan, there's no opting out. You That's coming off your check every year, right. every year. Whereas humans with the ability to have other priorities in their life, 
might pause those contributions while they, you know, have kids and, you know, buy something, you know, a large expenditure one year, right? Because now you've got all, you're not forced to contribute this amount. So there's no guarantee that you will. No, that's, that's very interesting. How do you factor in a pension into an early retirement for both the pension types? Like we hear about the FIRE movement, or even someone that's maybe not really part of the FIRE movement, maybe they just want to retire at 50 instead of that traditional 65. But, but yeah, let's also tackle it from the angle of someone that is in their 30s or 40s, and they've got a you know, crazy high savings rate, they're on track to actually pull it off. You know, how do you factor in these pensions? So it's going to be very difficult for an early retiree to who is predominantly saving in either pension plan to be able to retire early without other savings, like significant other savings. So uh, with a defined benefit plan, uh, you cannot access that until uh, your earliest, let's say, um, reduced pension date. And so that could be 55, for example. And then the earliest unreduced amount you could receive might be at 60. So, you know, retiring at 50, now you're waiting until 55 or 60 to be able to start collecting a pension. And that pension might not be as as high as, uh, as, as if you would have worked until your kind of normal retirement date. When you have a defined contribution plan, the same thing holds true. It's going into essentially a locked in retirement account which is like an RSP, but with special rules that uh, you cannot access this money barring you know, financial hardship until age 55. And so retiring early, you have to think, I need other savings in order to make this work because I cannot get access to either of these until at least, let's say, 55 years old. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. What are the tax implications of potentially taking a pension buyout for early retirement? Yeah. So some people get, if we're talking about a defined benefit pension plan, oftentimes you may get the choice to, let's say you retire early, you could take a lump sum or what's called the commuted value of that pension. So remember I said, if you factored in or tried to calculate the present value of that future income stream, that's essentially what the commuted value is or the lump sum of the pension. And they'll say, okay, well, you could take this lump sum, but here's what's going to happen. Only a maximum amount, it's called the maximum transfer value can be placed into a lira, okay? And then whatever else. So let's just use an example. Let's say $500,000 you could take a lump sum. Well, maybe only 250,000 of that or 300,000 of that is eligible to be transferred to a lira. The rest of it is just going to pay be paid out to you in cash, a check oh. basically, and you'll be taxed fully on that. Okay? So you have to remember that it's not just like People's eyes uh, widen when they see that they could get access to five hundred thousand dollars or more and invested on. So you could be bumped up own. into a really high bracket, eh? Totally. If, uh, if, if, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So you have to really think about this. So in a lot of cases, let's say if you're retiring or you don't plan on working that year, this could actually work out fairly well. So you get the lump sum, you get the amount into deposited into a lira which again, as I said, it's got some special rules. You can't access it till 55, but you can invest it on your own. And then you get this cash. But if you don't have another job that you're going to, to get paid, let's say that that's at least manageable. It would be like getting a year's worth of salary you know, or more all up front. And so you can live off of that, let's say for a, for a year or a little bit longer. So that, that could work out okay. But if you're leaving a job, you get the lump sum and you're going to another job that's going to pay you a regular salary, you could have really big tax implications on that, you know, which will put you, you know, in the highest tax rate in in that year. 
So it's yeah. something something to really consider. Hopefully you have a lot of RSP contribution from saving. Well, up. <laughs> that's the thing. So you could, you know, the lira amount is not dependent on your RSP contribution room. I should say, I should say, or be clear with that. It can just go in a lira regardless of if you have RSP room or not. And then when you deal with the cash, uh, and a lot of times they'll just say, could we put, you know, up to your uh, limit into your RSP if you have room, and then we'll send you the rest in cash. And so if you have RSP room that's a palatable option because uh, it'll reduce the tax bite. I can see that being a really easy thing for someone to overlook is like you said, they see that number, they get excited, right. they decide they want it, but then the tax implications can be so enormous, right? Right. Well, imagine if you don't have RSP room, you're leaving the job, but you're going to work somewhere else. And then you're going to receive a pretty big or sizable taxable lump sum. You know That could eat into a big chunk of that entire amount. And which, of course, is then not available to you like this, if you like staying in the plan and receiving a defined benefit pension for life would have been. Yeah, you end up jumping up in the brackets, you end up paying 40 something percent tax on that. I mean, hard not to be bitter when you see this amount and then 42 percent gets taken out, right? Yes, exactly. Or or whatever that percentage is now. But yeah, in the 40s for like one of the higher brackets. So that's very interesting. Hey there, just a really quick intermission to ask if you could please leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying this episode and are using one of those as your podcast player. It really helps other Canadians discover the show and it makes it much easier for me to get top-notch guests on the show for you. So if you're a Spotify user, you just have to select the show in Spotify and scroll all the way to the top and there you'll see a button where you can give the show a star rating. It literally takes seconds and it helps an absolute ton. So thank you so much for supporting the show in that way. And now back to the show. So Rob, you had a defined benefit pension when you worked at the university before you became self-employed as a fee-for-service financial planner. Can you take us through how you decided between keeping the pension versus receiving the bio? Like you already said, you're getting this guaranteed pension, right? I mean, that's a really valuable, rare thing this day and age. But I believe you actually decided to get the buyout as well, right? I did. And so I actually went opposite of what I originally thought. Like, So I'm a big believer in having defined benefit pension income, having uh, like delaying CPP to in- increase that amount, because having this paid for life guaranteed index to inflation pension is a fantastic thing in retirement. But why did I go the other way? There was a few reasons. One, I was only in the plan for 10 years. So I was only going to be able to be getting around twelve to fourteen thousand dollars in retirement. And and my earliest kind of retirement age would have been 60. So and I did this at 40. So I'd be waiting 20 years to collect about twelve to fourteen thousand dollars. So essentially like another CPP, like another kind of max CPP, which you know was is great, but you know, it wasn't it's not thirty or forty thousand dollars. Another factor was that interest rates had come just come down, and that actually drives up the amount or the commuted value of your pension. So when I was expecting to see around like one hundred and fifty or one hundred and eighty thousand dollars, it was closer to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So that one again got kind of my eyes got a little bigger to that I could I could take that amount, and then three. I was leaving to become self-employed. I already had a corporation set up. And what I could do with that excess amount, that excess cash that I received, is just not pay myself from the corporation. So anything I earned that year as a planner and and through blogging and and freelance writing, I would just leave in the corporation and live off of the, the cash buyout that I received. So that was a big plus. 
And then the final one is that the pension plan itself was only 57% solvent. Okay, so you read through your pension statement and you got to go get really into the weeds to uh, see what's happening here. But the plan itself was on shaky ground. And so I was already on the receiving end as an employee paying more and more of my salary into this plan. And if you think about a university, think about people retiring at like 55 years old, being in the plan for uh, being a beneficiary in retirement for 35, 40 years, even longer than they potentially work there. So the plan was in trouble itself. And I wasn't about to wait 20 years to then find out that it wasn't going to be as good as I had anticipated. So for those reasons, and then the final reason was I was confident in my investing ability. I have a long time horizon. I have other savings. This wasn't my only, you know, my hopes and dreams and, and retirement plans was hinged on this amount. No, I had, you know, a fully funded RSP, TFSA, and plan to continue saving. So for that reason, I chose the lump sum and, and it's worked out that way. I set it up at TD Direct. I invested in uh, Vanguard's VEQT, like I do with my other funds, and took the cash, the rest of the cash, lived on that for a year, and now. And now here we are. And like you said before, they could have modified, in theory, the amount that you receive as well, right? So I guess you could have waited those decades. And then sometime from when you left your job to when you get it, you get a letter saying you're actually going to get less now because the plan's in trouble, like, right? Is that, that's a possibility, I suppose, right? Yeah, there's no guarantees in life. And that uh, even though you know this was you know essentially backed by the Alberta government, you know, 20 years is a long time. And even if the modifications were simply, we're not doing cost of living adjustments anymore, well, that's a hit to my retirement income because it would just stay that 12,000 or 14,000 or whatever it was for 30, 40 years. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't about to take that risk. Now, this would be a very different choice. It's not saying I'm pro take the commuted value. If I was a lot closer to retirement, if I was 50 at 20 years in the plan, I was dealing with $500,000 or more instead of 200 that would have been a very different uh, decision. I would have loved to have that that extra kind of guaranteed pension income, even with a bit of a threat of potentially losing cost of living and whatnot. I think the choice could have been very different. But because I was only in it for 10 years and I uh, had all those other factors kind of going in my favor, I ended up doing the buyout. This sounds like a very, very dangerous area to use general rules of thumb, eh? Where Definitely. it's like, oh, always do X, always do Y, or if this, then 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 do this, right? It sounds like it's extremely, from what you've explained in your story, very situational, lots of different variables, some very quantitative in nature, uh, some very qualitative in nature. And yeah, it's a very much something that you really need to examine all the angles because it's not like there's one choice where this is all where x is always the right answer and is always the optimum answer that seems like that's just not that does not happen in this when it comes to deciding whether you want to take the buyout or not i would totally agree with that and even for me who helps people through these decisions i reached out to an expert alexandra mcqueen who goes by money gal on twitter she's a, a pension expert and kind of helped me through you know we reached the same conclusion but interesting to just see her process of what she would go through and, and kind of as I explained those uh, things like is the pension plan solvent how much are you going to receive what's your investing knowledge and experience do you have other savings and things like that so it's just interesting to get an outside view of that process and you know to help make that decision so I'd highly encourage people to do that and not just go to kind of like a bank advisor 
because there's a there's a high right. conflict of interest here, Cornell. Like this is something we haven't really talked about. But imagine the choice you go to a, an advisor who's compensated by the commission on investing with him or her, and you're asking, should I stay in the plan or should I take the commuted value and invest it with you? Well, what do you think they're going to tell you if their if their incentives are, you know, I can gather these assets and get uh, you know one percent trailer fee off of this. For sure. Do you, yeah. do you think they'd be motivated to tell you to take the commuted value and invest it? Probably. Exactly. So you got to be careful yeah, yeah. with that. And even if they don't, there's also the other model, right? Where it's the, the percentage of assets. So even if they're not actually going to be getting commissions from what they're selling you, because if they are, then obviously they have they want you to take the buyout and then sell yeah. you things. But even if it's a percentage of assets model, I guess there's potentially some conflict there as well, right? Because if it's in a pension, then they're not really managing that money versus if, it's part of your total assets, then now they are. So now they get a percentage of that, right? So that's all, yeah. Then you get into the whole thing of how do you find the right planner? How do you make sure they're ethical? How do you make sure even if that conflict exists or or potential for conflict exists that they actually aren't, that's not swaying their recommendation to you kind of thing, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really good point. And yeah, I like how you actually got us, even though you're very well-versed in this. And I believe you do this for clients as well, right? Where you help them decide. But even as an expert in this field, you decided to still get a second opinion just because when you're this close to it, right? When it's your own money, it's so valuable to get that second opinion from another expert, right? It, it kind of they don't have those sort of level, those emotions and that attachment to it that you may have, right? Exactly. It was just you know you, you should look at it with an outside view and go through a methodical. These are the steps I would take to look at any decision like this, and ticked all these boxes to say, you know, go ahead and take the money and invest it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. I, I'm a big fan of that. Even I, I know when we were working on our sort of early retirement uh, strategy and all that and seeing if we can actually quit our jobs, we did the same thing where I was like, okay, I feel pretty confident in this. I know how to use the financial modeling software and all that, but I still want to seek the advice of other experts in the field so they can run their own numbers. Yeah, what am I missing here? Exactly. Because well, when you're so close to it, right? And it's hard to totally keep emotions out of it. And it's like, you don't know what you don't know as well, right? And no one knows everything. Yeah. <laughs> and so you want that second opinion for someone that's not as close to it, right? So yeah, I, I, that, that's really neat because you, you took that kind of same approach that I did. And and yeah, I think that's a really good idea for mm-hmm. sure. That's awesome. Oh, you mentioned VEQT as well, which, I'm a, <laughs> which is interesting because I'm, I'm a big fan of that as well. I, I pretty much use that exclusively for our uh, kids' RESP as well. So big fan of that one. Yeah, it was just a set it and forget it kind of thing. And the timing worked out because it was, I think, April or May when I got that set up. And yeah. so, yeah, then, then then the market was on kind of an upswing. So I think I ended up with $150,000 and pretty soon it was worth one hundred and eighty. dollars yeah. just because of the timing of that. So, you know, of course I can't control that, but it worked out. And you don't have to rebalance through the whole process, no, which is no. nice. The, the luxury exactly. <laughs> of the EVQT. Yeah. <laughs> I know when I, when I decided to, to use that for our ESP for the kids, I'm already rebalancing our own our retirement portfolio, right? So I don't want to have to also rebalance the RESP. Plus like the amounts aren't as big, right? And so the, so the savings aren't as, as substantial and all that. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So no, I, I hear you. <laughs> Are there any other pros and cons that for the different approaches that you want to add? Or do you think we covered them in terms of the taking the buyout versus not? I think we covered them. I, I, I just, uh, you know, you think about your length of service there. I really stress that I was only there 10 years. Defined benefit pension plans are super lucrative when you see the plan through, like you work there for the 30 years or reach your like 80 or 85 factor where you're going to get that full pension. Because I've seen some pretty lucrative pensions, like 60, 70, $80,000 a year. Wow. That is hard to replicate. I would say darn near impossible to replicate on your own. 
And so if you were very close to retirement and you had the option to pull that money out of the plan, I would highly suggest you get uh, some unbiased uh, second opinion on that mm-hmm. because it's really hard to replicate. Yeah, that's great. Uh, when you have a defined benefit pension plan, your RSP contribution room gets reduced. Now, this begs the question whether employees with good defined benefit pension plans should even bother with an RSP. Yeah, I mentioned the teachers who are prone to marrying other teachers. And so you're going to have these two strong defined benefit pension plans waiting for them in retirement. The downside is that because they're also contributing to these plans during their working years, they probably have a little less money to save. I would be more inclined to utilize the uh, TFSA there. Like if you just, you know, if you have five, $6,000 a year left over and you're just trying to decide between the two, the TFSA might be a better choice just to help you manage your taxes later. You're receiving defined benefit pension income plus like forced uh, RIF or RSP withdrawals, you know, could push you into a tax bracket that, uh, uh, that is on the high side. And so with the TFSA, that's a nice complement to having a pension. But that said, you could be earning 100000 or more and utilizing your RSP makes good sense. So for me, I was never a six-figure earner by any means, but I was close. And so, yes, I contributed a lot of my salary to the, the organization's pension plan. And what that meant was a pension adjustment reduced my RSP contribution room. So typically you would get, let's say you made $100,000, you would get 18% of that next year as RSP available contribution room, $18,000. Well, for me, my RSP room after the pension adjustment was only around $3,600. Okay. So it was really, you know, manageable to max that out. And so I did that plus some TFSA contributions, uh, even though I already had this defined benefit plan. But the reason why is because I knew I probably wouldn't be there for 30 years and as it turned out, you know, I left after 10 years. So I'm glad I had some other savings. But if you know you're going to be kind of a lifer there and, and work that 30, 40 years, you could probably forego RSP contributions knowing that you're going to have this pretty strong defined benefit pension plan and maybe try to focus on your TFSA instead. For sure, because I can see someone really shooting themselves in the foot a little bit if they just kind of approach this somewhat blindly and just, okay, they're getting their pension, their defined benefit pension. They're maybe putting some money into the RSP as well, just on some automated sort of process. And then they end up retiring. And then now they're getting hit with pension income. They're getting hit with CBP OAS. They're getting, you know, they've, they've got, they start um, having to withdraw from the RSP as well, right? And so now all of those things are actually hitting your personal income. And you can go in really, really high brackets, maybe even more than when you were yeah, <laughs> working possibly, true. right? So yeah, definitely one thing just for the listeners, uh, when I interview different experts, a very common sort of best practice that I would say I hear from them and then what something I do myself as well is to make sure that you are actually also diversified in terms of the accounts that you have, right? So don't just plow all your money into the RRSP. I mean, the whole RRSP TFSA debate, there's a way to optimize that yes. uh, for sure. So that's like a whole nother topic altogether. <laughs> but one thing I will say is that you don't want to just have everything in you know, RSP pension, you know, and then you get your CPP OAS, because then that's all going to hit your taxable income, it's going to get you to a higher bracket. Whereas if you have that TFSA, you can take some money out without it making you exceed that bracket. So 
just really want to throw that one in because I, I used to work at Snap Projections where you know we would do the financial modeling for people and, and help advisors. And and yeah, I, I definitely saw some people get into some hot water where they, they're very bitter because <laughs> they, you know what they have all this money, great, but it's all in these accounts that are gonna hit their income directly and they're and they're being basically they're being forced to take out money that they're not even gonna spend that year. Yeah. You know, which is a position you don't want to be in, right? Where you're taking this money out. Put, putting in a higher tag bracket, but you don't, you don't even want the money yet. You want it five years from now, but too bad because that's the rules, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you really want to plan this out. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Uh, sorry, here's my tangent sometimes, but yeah, this is a big one because I remember talking to some angry people about that kind of thing. For sure. Okay, that sounds good. So let's also tackle this question from the defined contribution pension plan perspective. Sure. So in most cases, you know, you're wanting to take advantage of that employer match. And so we could use an example of like 5% of your contribution, 5% employee match. Well, that's 10% going into your RSP or into this defined contribution pension plan, which is treated like an RSP contribution. Well, it still leaves you with 8% to contribute plus any unused room. And so you could certainly open a, a personal RSP. And so I've got lots of clients who do this. And so the, the rule of thumb would be, let's contribute to the defined contribution pension plan just enough to get the employer match. So 5%, 5% or whatever your plan is. And then if you have excess cash flow and you want to continue making RSP contributions, let's say you do that optimization math and, and it still makes sense to do RSP over TFSA, then stop contributing to the defined contribution plan where your investment options are limited right into the plan's options. And you could go ahead and open a, a personal RSP account and invest in something that you can choose uh, where you have you know every available investment uh, under the sun. So think about it that way, where you want that employer match, like that is the golden goose, that's what you want. And then a saving outside of that, you got to open your own personal accounts to do so. Because I think they will let you keep contributing even above that, even For sure. above your match. It's just you won't get the match anymore, right? Exactly. So kind of think yeah. about it like an RESP where you know you get contribute $2,500, you get the government to the 20% government grant. There's no real incentive to save over and above that because there's no, there's no matching dollars. For sure. And I mean, you can get a lot of times, at least from what I've seen, you can get much lower cost and really solid products just do on your own. Yes. So you wouldn't really want to stick with this plan. But they, they definitely try to. I remember them sending us materials when my wife used to work and like, oh, hey, you get a discount because, you know, we are in this group thing. And so you get these reduced fees because you're part of this big company, you know, and the deal that we structured with them. So, you know, so they try to kind of incentivize you to keep pumping all your retirement savings into them. Yeah. But then you look at the, these, you know, re- quote unquote, reduced rates. <laughs> and it's like, this is still way like multiples of what I can get my, if I just do it through a discount brokerage. So something to be careful of for sure. Yeah. And if you're a confident uh, DIY investor, then this is an easy choice, right? To kind of open your self-directed account and pick your own investments. But for someone who just wants to save, but wants someone else to manage it, then, then sure, like continue contributing to that plan because the options are probably better than what you'd just get by going into a, a bank or regular investment firm. And then let's talk about our investment options with the two different pension types. And we've already covered the first one a bit, but just to kind of repeat here. So for people with defined benefit pensions, do they have any options in terms of how much to contribute and what that money goes into? And so you said no to that, right? No, it's all, uh, this is all taken care of by the employer or the plan administer. So, you know, the amount that you contribute is is defined and then the plan invests according to its its mandate. So 
you know, unless you can like get yourself on the board of directors at the, right. <laughs> or, or some kind of employer, uh, employee advocacy group to uh, talk about this. And, and I've seen that before, like employees who are pretty savvy about this have, you know, encouraged or tried to, you know, help guide these investments, but that's pretty rare on the defined benefit side. It's more, more common. Yeah. It's, it's almost like you have to put in like a lobbying effort, yeah, right? Right. I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. It got me thinking this question because especially these days, right? We see ESG investing has become pretty popular, right? So people that want to invest in companies that are environmentally friendly, socially conscious companies, that kind of a thing, right? Or they want to aggress- invest more aggressively because they feel they can handle the fluctuations or maybe they want to be more conservative, right? But it sounds like with a defined benefit, you don't get to choose any of that, like you said, unless you want to be on the board or start lobbying, I guess, right? And I think lobbying maybe would be more beneficial on the ESG side. Right. Where, you know, maybe you find out maybe you find out that the plan is investing in something unsavory that you don't like and, and, and you and a bunch of employees kind of get together and say, hey, uh, we don't like this. And uh, and we've seen this with like CPP investments divested themselves of like, you know, prisons in the United States and things like that. Right. Where, you know, if something's really blatant, I think you'd have more luck, you know, doing some advocacy that way. But getting them to change their investment mandate is, uh, is probably not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, you're right, because I mean, a lot of these defined benefit pension plans, a lot of them are government, right? And so they yeah. want to be sort of this positive force and serve the people, that kind of a thing. And so if they're investing in things that are seen as not socially conscious, right, then yeah, yeah I, I could see you, you having a strong versus you guys should do more equity yeah, 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 right. <laughs> to get more. They're kind of like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So for defined contribution pensions, in that one, you definitely do have to pick what the money goes into, uh, but I can it can be overwhelming analyzing and choosing from the different investment options offered by the company that your employer has selected. I know when my wife was at at her job back in the day, you know, they just, they just hand her like a sheet, right. Of these like yep. tickers and, and fun names. And it's like, there you go off to the races. Right. And I'm, you know, she wasn't trained in that. I wasn't trained in that at the time either. And, you know, this is the kind of, they just kind of assume that you're able to, you know, to, to pick these things strategically and you know how to do these things. So when you speak to a client that is really struggling with this, cause I really think it's a lot of information overload for people. And maybe that's why not everyone's contrib or one of the reasons not everyone's contributing and, and getting that full employment your match because they're just like i'll put this on my to-do list because i got to figure out what i'm going to invest in first and then you know it's easy to procrastinate on that so is there a certain process or approach that you suggest to your clients to help them decide on what investments to pick when they are limited in their selection because this is part of their employer plan yeah well typically i'll ask to see that menu of options because and you're right it could be overwhelming like some are you know one page and some could be five pages all with different individual funds looking at uh, you know different countries and sectors and whatnot. So for the most part, what you're after is that match, right? Like that trumps to me that trumps everything is getting that match. Yes. And then of course you need to put your funds to work. So in a lot of cases they'll default you into as I said a target date fund matching closely with your retirement date or your normal retirement date. And I think that's good enough. Like if you're just talking about you want to invest, you want to get that employer match and you're in a target date fund that's going to automatically rebalance, that's less decision-making that you need to make. You know, and in a lot of cases, it's like these BlackRock life path funds, which are, which are excellent and they're low, they're low cost. But if you're like auto-enrolled into something ridiculous or expensive or whatever, then it could be worth going and looking, do you have access to some index funds? 
and just try to make your own balanced portfolio. So whether that's a they have a global ba- uh, balanced index fund, or you have to kind of construct your own with a Canadian index, a U.S. index, an international, and then a bond. Um, you know, just try to think about making it as simple as possible because the goal is really to contribute to get the employer match. And then third would be, you know, try to keep your fees down and keep things simple. Sounds good. No, that's great. So yeah, I've gotten this question a lot by students of the investing course that I run. And so what I did is I, I came up with a process that I thought I'd, I'd share with you, Rob, and to all the listeners. And I thought maybe if you want to jump in, if you have anything to add, or if you disagree with anything, and then that way I find listeners have sort of a nice step-by-step process using both of our brains that they, that they can use. Would that be all right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So basically I have a five sort of step process. Like this is how I would do it if we were still working at a, you know, and getting a, a defined contribution, had a access to a defined contribution pension plan. So step one, and some of this overlaps with what you've already said. So step one, check if there are any passive broad market index funds available because some on that list will be active probably where they get, you know, a lot higher fees and they say they can beat the market, even though they probably can't, that kind of thing. So I would, that was kind of my number one is just check if there are any passive broad market index funds available. And if you don't know how to do that, because there's five pages of tickers and it's overwhelming, which is totally normal, then I would say, talk to your HR. If you don't have a contact yet at that investment company, talk to your HR person who should be able to direct you to someone that actually knows these investments at that company. And they should be able to tell you which ones are passive versus which ones are not. And you can also Google it under your own research, but that's what I would do. First of all, did you have anything to add there, Rob? What are your thoughts on that as the first step? No, I think that makes sense. Some of the key um, giveaways or or hints in there will be the fund will have index in it if it's an index fund. And so right. just, you know, if you're, if you just blindly have no knowledge whatsoever, this menu of options, look for ones that actually say the word index. That's right. Yeah. And I guess you could also avoid, if you see things like tactical something or whatever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ones to avoid. Yeah. High growth or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so step two that I have is from those finalists in step one, so you, you've got, kind of got this sort of short list now a little bit. The next one is, are they tracking a well-established and respected index, not some sub-segment? So there's, and my main point here is that there's already hundreds of indexes out there. There may even be thousands for a line. There's, there's a lot, basically. Yep. So just because something says that they're following an index, that doesn't mean that it's that, that you want that index, right? Because it could be complete garbage. And so you want to make sure that you're doing broad market sort of that the index that you're following is represents the broad market and that it's a respected one. So for example, in Canada, there's the S&P TSX. In the US, there's the CRISP US Total Market Index. That's the one that Vanguard uses. So if you ever want to look that up, it's CRSP and then space US Total Market Index. And then there's the S&P Total Market Index. And that's the one that iShares uh, uses. So you know, make sure that it's actually uh, <laughs> legit, <laughs> You know, for lack of a better word, index, something that's respected, that actually is used by investors that know what they're doing, not some sort of off-the-cuff thing that they create created because oh we created this index which is going to beat the general market and that's it's probably you know not so uh something to keep in mind do you have anything to add to that one rob no i think that makes sense and even when you're having trouble comparing i typically go with the broadest right so one yes well like one example is is one tracking the entire canadian market which could be like 200 stocks versus just the tsx 60 that's right yes so big bigger broader the usually the better that's a great point, yeah. And we see the same sort of thing in the US, right? Yep. Where some people might see an S&P 500 index on there. Yep. And then it's like, well, do I want the S&P 500 or do I want the US total market index? Yep. And so typically, again, you know, 
we have, I don't know if you'd like a disclaimer here, you know, we're not telling you to buy <laughs> what to buy or whatever, but but generally if you're doing the broad market index investing, right? You're just you're just trying to get the returns of the market, yes. you would side with the total market index, like the US total market index, as opposed to the S&P 500, which is an index, it's a well-respected index, it's a nice index, but you know, it's not the total sort of market of the US, right? It's, sure. it's like a sub- You're missing the of- mid-cap and small-cap stocks. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And I know uh, Ben Felix from PWL, he's done some really good, some of his content talked about how you know, it's actually like established by committee. So it's not like they're just looking at like market cap, they're looking at other things. And so it makes it actually, it's not as sort of passive as I think people perceive the S&P 500 to be. I mean, it's a good, it's a good index. Obviously it's done extraordinarily well over the last 12 years, but uh, if you want those, the total market, you know, mid caps, small caps then. Um, definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I'm not bashing it. It's, it's more, <laughs> yeah, just to, to know that S&P 500 is not the same as US total market index. And like, I guess if we're like a purist passive index ETF investor, then you would go with the US total market index, yep. not the S&P 500. Okay. <laughs> then moving on to number three, uh, I would say watch out for the sales pitch. Cause when you're talking to that person, they might have a financial incentive to basically say, Hey, why would you take the US total market index when you can take our mutual fund here, which is obviously going to beat the market and it's going to do amazing things, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> right. So watch out for that because companies don't make nearly as much money on these sort of passive index uh, investments as they do on these actively traded funds. Right. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. And then four was fees, which you've already mentioned. Obviously, look at fees. So if you see a really good Canadian market one and a good US one, and one like the US one, let's say, has way, way, way higher fees than the Canadian one, okay, then maybe you get swayed sort of to that one. Um, But that kind of leads into point number five, which was make sure to factor in your work pension portfolio allocation to the rest of your private portfolio. So just what do I mean by that? Because that kind of sounds like a mouthful now that I read it out loud. (laughs) So I'll use a real life example and then I'll be happy to hear your thoughts, Rob. So when my wife was working and she had this at her work, we found they had actually had a pretty good one that represented Canada. So there was like an S&P TSX, uh, fund. It was still relatively low cost, obviously not as cheap as you can get yourself, but you know, pretty good, right? And the other ones were not as were not as good. I wasn't really you know happy with them, and so we actually ended up. And I'm not saying everyone should do this, but in our specific case, with what was available to us, the Canadian one was good. So for her entire pension piece, when we were doing the, getting the employer match, we put all of it into the Canadian one, the S&P TSX fund that they had. And that's fine, but that was not our entire portfolio. So we also had our so discount brokerage account. And in there, we held you know the US and the international and everything else. And what we did is we would then decrease the... We, we basically factor in that, okay, in our other in our discount brokerage, we're already holding some Canada from her work. And so we want to hold a little bit less Canada in our discount brokerage account because we don't want to be overweight in the Canadian index. I don't know if I explained that well. Uh, Rob, maybe you can tell me if yes, that made sense. you're treating right. your portfolio like you know the many different investment accounts. You're treating it all as one portfolio. So you're getting your Canadian exposure from the pension plan, which means that you're going to have less Canada or maybe even no Canada in the rest of your accounts and you'll have to adjust accordingly. I agree with that. That makes perfect sense if you know you don't have very many options. Again, I'm less fussy about getting this like exactly right because you're usually limited with your investment options. But what are you after? Again, you're after that employer match. Good enough is good enough in this account, at least in my opinion. And if you could avoid having to pick like four or five different funds and you could get just a global 
balanced fund or a low cost target date fund, I think that's good enough. And then you kind of limit the amount of choices you have to make and the stress involved of like trying to manage your portfolio allocation. We're not all nerds like you and I, where we can, uh, where we like to optimize this stuff. And so again, like simplicity would be my addition to this. I agree. Yeah. Now that I reflect on it, I can see this not, this, this would work well for some people, but for others, it's like, hold on, wait, so I got to pick a Canadian, a bond one, a US one, you know, international one, and then do the same thing for my portfolio that I have I'm at a discount brokerage too, and, and then I have to rebalance it. And right. so, yeah, I could see that it, it gets pretty complex. And like you said, ideally, hopefully they do offer some sort of fund, like you said, some sort of target date fund or just something that basically is a good diversified portfolio. Hopefully it's all just passive sort of indexes still, you know, and, and then you can just buy that. And then by default, it's going to keep buying out every time you get the employer match and you contribute and then you're basically done and you don't have to start fiddling with, exactly. like in my case, right? We had to then rebalance our portfolio, use my spreadsheets, yada, yada, to, to actually make sure that we're not overweighting Canada in our other portfolio, right? So yeah, that's, that, that's a good point. I, I like your simplicity thing because I think, yeah, for, I would say the majority of people, the simplicity thing would win for sure. And then there's like the people that are like me who just geek out on spreadsheets that can, you know, fine tune it a little bit. But I mean... The, the benefit is not so enormous that it's worth like sinking yeah, ridiculous yeah. amounts time of time into, yeah, right? Absolutely. Because like you said, it, it's really all about the employer match. That's the real reason you're doing it. So. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thanks for your input on that. Yeah, I just thought it'd be good to have a process, right? Because I can see it being very overwhelming. And I just think it's kind of strange how we're handed these sheets when we start jobs. And it's like, go be a picker now. Like, right. You know, go be a fun picker. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> So anyways, all right, moving on. Uh, second last question here. So can you take us through some of the common mistakes that you see people do with the two different pension types? Is there anything that comes to mind or from the clients that you work in or that you've seen? So one, one interesting one with the defined contribution plan, and it kind of speaks to what we've talked about. If, if you're woke to the idea of high fee funds, you might look at the menu of options presented before you in your defined contribution plan and think, you, I don't want to invest in any of these because all I see is, you know, high fee mutual funds. And I would encourage you to reconsider that. And again, you're after the match, which could be up to like, you know, a 50 to 100% return on your contributions. And then the next step would be to look into the ability to transfer out into your your personal RSP is that so in a lot of cases where you have like a group RSP plan where the employer is contributing, they might allow you to transfer funds out once a year or once every two years for free. So you can get the match, invest in whatever the lousy mutual funds are, and then move your funds over to your own kind of self-directed portfolio. So don't just get discouraged by kind of a poor menu of options. And I will just say they're getting better. Like the the menu of options are getting much better and, and much lower cost, especially if the organization is quite large. But don't get discouraged because the match in almost all cases outweighs any of the, even if you're paying high fees. So that's one on the defined contribution side. On the defined benefit side, I think I mentioned this, but just don't, um, if you've got a strong pension plan, you're going to kind of be there for your uh, the bulk of your career don't get discouraged by money being a little bit tighter, like not being able to save even more outside of your defined benefit pension. That's going to provide the bulk of your retirement income. And so in many cases, it takes the pressure off having to save an additional 10% of your salary 
just because the pension plan is so strong. So just don't get discouraged that, you know, you don't, you can't save outside of that plan. If you can, you know, as I said, fill up that TFSA, uh, but don't feel like, you know, you must max out whatever RSP room you have plus TFSA plus save outside of that plus pay, pay down your mortgage fast. Like in a lot of cases, the defined benefit pension plan is going to be making up the bulk of your retirement income. And so you can consider your retirement, you know, for the most part covered. That's a good point. Yeah. If someone doesn't have that plan and they're pumping so much money, let's say into paying off their mortgage, let's say, and then you're a teacher saying like, well, we don't have enough money to pay off the mortgage even quicker like this other person, right? Yep. It's like, okay, yes, yeah, true, but you're actually putting it into your pension and you're going to have basically income for life essentially, right? So definitely don't do the whole uh, comparison to the Joneses necessarily, right? Because no, no, you're in a different not. situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One thing too, uh, Rob, that kind of jotted my memory as you were talking about the defined contribution pension plans and about people kind of get, getting into them and then maybe being able to switch out or at least a portion of it. When you leave that job, you are able to then take that and move it into, let's say, your own discount brokerage. I know that's what we did. And I remember they actually had some of, if not the best salespeople I've ever spoken to. It was really, really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I knew what they were trying to do, so I didn't fall for it. But they they had a down pat, like in terms of, so, so the way that it did it, right, is, is we, so my wife left, right? And then they will obviously want you to keep that money in their, as part of their plan, right? Because then yeah. they get their higher fees off that and, every, and everything, right? So they would do that whole sales pitch about, oh, how you're, even though you've left your employer, you're still going to get these big discounts on their fees, if you just stay with us and the money's already there. So like, why would you bother switching yeah. when it, you know, you're already set up with us and you're getting these deals and then here you can actually, even though you're not with them anymore, you can still contribute to the plan and just do it, you know, with us and it's going to be great. And, and this whole show and they, and it was really, I mean, they had their sales pitch down pat. It was really impressive. And then of course we switched it to our discount brokerage because why would we pay these, you know, even though their discounts were still pretty high cost and they were, you know, actively managed uh, things. They had a lot of actively managed things as well. So, but that's one thing that I would say to also remember, right? That it's not like you're locked in for life with those expensive mutual funds with that employer because you're probably going to switch jobs and then you can move them out and manage them yourself. Exactly. Yeah, that's fair. So that's another rant, but I hope that was helpful because I think I can see that being a trap that people fall into. So Rob, really, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Again, we look forward to seeing you at the Canadian Financial Summit again this year as one of the speakers. And can you tell us more where we can see more of your content, your research, and learn more about your practice as well? For sure. So everything you can find out at boomerandecho.com. And you'll see my fee-only service up there my latest blog posts. And every weekend I do kind of a weekend uh, reading roundup of uh, interesting stuff I've read around the web. And I'll also share some, uh, if I have some freelance pieces out, uh, I'll share those there as well. And I'm pretty active on Twitter. So you can find me there at Boomer and Echo as well. Awesome. And it's a really great blog. So if everybody wants to check it out, definitely you can see a lot of Rob's guides there. And he's been writing on it for many, many years now. Is it like over a decade now, Rob? It is over 10 years now. Yeah. yeah. Ancient in blog years. (laughs) <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right all right well, well thank you so much for coming on definitely i'll be linking out to all of that in the show notes as well for anybody who wants to check it out at uh, buildwealthcanada.ca it's going to be basically on the front page there so you can take a look and yeah again rob thanks so much for coming on and i look forward to seeing your talk at the summit this year oh thanks so much it was a pleasure all right awesome take care bye 
All right, thanks for tuning into the episode. A big thanks to my favorite and most frequently used investing tool, Passive, for sponsoring the show. You can get your free account in Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And you can see my portfolio and what ETFs I buy within Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash portfolio. Passive is literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments as it lets me immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio and it automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to give me back to my target asset allocation across all my household's accounts. Then if I want, in a couple clicks, I can have Passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all of my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account manually to do the trades myself. My other favorite feature is to be able to see the performance of my entire household investment portfolio across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all my accounts just to see how we're doing. They have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Quest Trade user like me, you can also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer and I've personally been using them for years at this point. So I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments as they've saved me dozens of hours when managing and optimizing my portfolio. So definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company and you can get your free account by going over to buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Again, that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Thanks so much for tuning in for this episode and see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.